Hey friends, and welcome to episode 13 of Sprouting in STEM, the podcast about young people in science. I'm Audrey Farrell. I am Matthew Murphy, and this week we talk a lot about the different things you need to know going forward into academia that no one ever teaches you. So we'll try and teach you that. A little bit. A little bit. We'll touch on it. (laughs) Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. I've been taking a really woke approach to life. This starting this semester especially. Yeah, being mindful. Just being mindful, being more cognizant of who I am and the way I respond to things in life and how those affect both my attitude and the way I come off to others and how I impact others. Yeah. And really just the direction of my life from this point. (laughs) Deep shit. Yeah. I think as a person who's gone through at least some amount of therapy, like, I've been told so many times to practice, like, mindful self-compassion, that it is something I am cognizant of these days. I don't, I don't think of it as mindfulness, though it definitely is, but just, like, regularly checking in with myself and being like, okay, I'm frustrated right now, and am I frustrated based on the things immediately in front of me, or am I letting my stress from like other aspects of my life seep into this and am i treating the people around me differently because of that and how do i adjust i had a really good moment last night and because of it i woke up feeling super productive and just super in the zone mm-hmm. and you might be able to tell because i put out <laughs> content in all three of our social platforms oh, you did? I, didn't even I put out a facebook post i put out an instagram story nice. and then i tweeted because i was with alex last night and he was upset that i I tweeted because climate change has been in the news recently in yeah. the conference and everything. So I put out like a link to our past climate episode. Mm-hmm. And then I was talking to him. He's like, oh, how come you didn't say anything about my redid episode? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We we are. We we should be making a little more of an effort towards our socials. If we're being quiet on our on our social media around this time, it's because we're we're applying to grad school. <laughs> and we're going through finals. So we'll make an effort to to do more, but also we're not full-time podcast uh what's the word? Hers. <laughs> Podcasters. <laughs> no, no, no. I uh, like um broadcasters? No, it's like it's like aficionados, but not that I don't know. Huh. I ain't got it, Chief. Part of my woke journey oh, yeah? that I've been undertaking <laughs> has been a majority of it has been content from Gary Vaynerchuk. And like the majority of his content is like how to, you know, get yourself out there and like especially your business and how to market yourself to people, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I've been kind of picking a little bit of it up. So that's something I really got to work on. Yeah, I think there's an there's an expectation for scientists when you go into it that you don't need to be very socially adept. Yeah. But it's so untrue. It's such a stereotype, And too. it's so aggravating because it, it is true of a lot of young scientists. They don't know how to interact with other people in a professional way. They don't know how to market themselves to others or to people kind of ahead of them in the hierarchy. And they really don't know how to interact with women. <laughs> In a lot of situations. Yeah. <laughs> in this scenario, they're all men. But um, it's not always true, but it is a stereotype of, of scientists that's highly perpetuated in the media. And I think 
in a lot of ways that has attracted people that don't want to learn to be sociable, that don't want to learn to to kind of market and, what's that word, network. And nor do you really ever get the opportunity to at least learn how to do so. Yeah, I feel like you're either ignoring it or you're just jumping right in. Like, my, my first conference was overwhelming and how little I knew how to approach new people I hadn't met and put myself into their minds and be like, hi, here I am. Here's what I do. Your work is interesting to me. Like, where can we go from here? It's such a scary, overwhelming thing. Is that something you've learned how to do since then? I think I've gotten better at it. There were a few people I... I, I, uh, I sat through a talk uh, that was slightly adjacent to work I'd done previously. And one of the... Like, in that session, one of the talks had been discussing using machine learning to find certain boundary conditions on where particles were hitting in this detector system. It doesn't matter the specifics, but I recalled a a bit of code that one of my uh like co-workers i guess you could say uh the, the other research assistant in my lab had written that did a very similar thing and did it very well because they were also a comp sci major so they didn't know, knew how to do that kind of stuff and so I, I spent the rest of the session after that talk trying to work myself up to i want to go up to that person introduce myself say where I'm from, what I've worked on, and why, like how the code we've written could be applicable to his work. And it was so nerve-wracking. I did manage to do it. It was way more awkward than I thought, but it, it was okay. And I think you just have to do that, and you get better at it in time. Like, I, I didn't end up talking too much to the person that had presented, but the person who had been standing in, nearby while I had like introduced myself and said that came up to me afterwards and then we had a lovely talk and he invited me to apply to his program so it did work it didn't work in the way i expected but it did work in a networking context and so i think that experience was very informative about the way i function in a in a professionally social environment it's like so different <laughs> than what you're used to and um just this week, I had to go to a lunch with um with my advisor and my advisor's advisor and my advisor's advisor's postdoc and my advisor's friend from grad school who's an like adjunct professor. Line. Yeah, it was it was a weird like lineage of plasma physicists, and so um I had to like go out to a, a lunch in a professional context, and that in itself was like such a weird experience but i feel like every time i do something like that i'm more and more prepared and it is definitely something you you just grow into but it's surprising how far a lot of people can get without learning kind of the social graces of science it's interesting because i because i also work at the simon center with a lot of older uh, mathematicians and physicists and and a lot of them are missing a lot of social cues and it's just something they never needed do you think, not not to be rude here, <laughs> this might have to go off the record, but do you think it could also just be because they're old? I definitely forgotten things. <laughs> a, few, a few wires got crossed along the way. I I think part of it is that, like, it is a generational thing. I think we're in a 
generation that is very perceptive to people's uh, emotional intelligence and interpersonal, intrapersonal intelligence, and that's not something that was necessarily true 50, 60 years ago. Do you think that's because of things like social media and just the fact that we are so much more connected to everything around us? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think uh, as a, like we're you and I fall kind of between millennials and Gen Z. We're not really entirely a part of either one. I don't know which one you identify with more. This is something I go back and forth on all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird because I th- feel like in a lot of ways I have a kind of millennial mindset on things because I have a lot of older siblings and so I'm like pretty mature for my age, but I'm behind. I feel like I'm behind on my career because I am young. I'm young. Like a lot of places put the cutoff for millennials at 1996 and we're in 1998. So it's <laughs> it's just a little bit off and then like certain Gen Z things I don't understand at all and then certain things I find hilarious and millennials don't. Like, I don't know. We're definitely at that threshold. Yeah, like I don't have a TikTok. But I will watch compilations of TikToks sometimes. Right. And think they're funny. Well, that's not just a generational thing. It might just be the fact that, I don't know, you don't feel like making an account. It's too much for me. Yeah. There's a lot of shit on TikTok. It's supposedly a really organic platform at the moment. Really? Because sites like Facebook and Twitter that have been around for a while, Instagram also, um, if you're a new user, you put out a post, you might get like hardly any exposure you might get like four views oh you can go crazy on tiktok real fast right yeah because it's such a land grab Mm. to quote from gary vaynerchuk oh my god i don't know who this is i he i sent you his podcast i don't think last night that's the one that gave me the moment (laughs) a moment of clarity have you joined a cult man i've joined the cult of the pursuit of happiness i like your boots thanks are those new no i feel like i haven't seen them before uh i got them last winter do they only come out when it's cold yeah Mm. that's fair oh another thing before we even fucking get into our episode (laughs) who knows where we are i feel like we're already like into it but we still haven't introduced it i might have to do some splicing well because a lot of what I don't know. I I listened to like one podcast, Mm -hmm. but one intro method we could do is to just have it separate. Like we'll record the intro separately, like either at the end or whatever. And just repeat it every time. And well, no, but like just stick it in at the beginning and then lead into what we record. That's true. So we could have like. So you could say like we could record in post and say like this week we talked about this this and this because yeah we re- we record our podcast very organically in yeah. that we don't plan ahead and we don't usually so we could just do what we normally do like and a then, cold open and, and then just do a quick reflection at the end yeah and then at the end introduces we'll, I don't know if you want to like do a separate recording or just cut I it can just and, cut clip it but we'll be like hey hey guys welcome this is blah blah blah. <laughs> to um, say blahs instead of just actually the real thing hey guys <laughs> this is sprouting and stem like whoever <laughs> says it i'm i'm audrey that's not <laughs> oh yeah uh we talked about this and this and this hmm. i hope you enjoy something along those lines yeah and then cut that and then it leads into our opening 
another thing. Can we make a Slack? For us? Yeah. I really enjoy using Slack. <laughs> Why do you like and I Slack? I want to use it. It's just like, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm being productive and getting things done. Messenger, we're a two-person team. Messenger's but, not enough? Just DMs? Do you want it separate from our normal chit-chat? Is that it? I just want it to be on Slack. You just like Slack? I feel like that would really <laughs> boost our productivity. Oh, yeah? Because right now we're mixing our home and work life. Matt, we record under my bed. <laughs> we're not going to separate home and work. No, it's not that. It's just the, the conversation. Hmm. Yeah, just switch very quickly from like memes to yeah. What are we posting on Instagram this week? <laughs> so I feel like if we had that separate channel, <laughs> we would be able to more not only focus what we're talking about more, but also just do it more. Mm. Just dive deeper into it. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a plan, Stan. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so the episode. What are we going to talk about? Well, we've already talked a little bit about presentations, about networking. Uh, I was really, really in a bad place because I got so hyped about making my poster. I like. Do you want to? Do you want to introduce what the poster was for? That's and irrelevant. The, the context of the situation. So for my <laughs> lab class, it's really set up to be as basically as close as you could get to real world experience in science hmm. as you could while still being in a class so at the end of it we kind of have this conference set up where each person you either have to give a presentation or if you already filled uh stony brook's speaking requirement hmm. you get to subvert that and instead do a poster which is what i did so i made a research poster in one of my lab projects and I set it up real nice. It was the first one I ever made. Mm. Super excited. Formatted it really beautifully. Yeah. It was like a really simple, but yet still. What you use? I just use PowerPoint. Oh. Fail. Didn't use Beamer. Beamer. Okay, Boomer. <laughs> okay, Beamer. Beamer is the LaTeX uh, presentation and poster formatting package. But uh, I set it up real nice. Got it printed. Looked beautiful. And right when we were starting the presentations on it mm. or like starting that, that whatever coffee break poster sesh mm. they were doing. I had a typo. <laughs> I, I had an equation that was a Fourier series mm -hmm. and I have the sum a N and then I put a plus sign between the coefficient and the sign term. Oh no. So it doesn't look like it's summing the whole thing. It's, it's just, it's just silly. Yeah. Do you know? So I covered it up with a piece of scrap paper and I taped it. I've on. got you beat though, because at the end of my summer program, I was presenting a poster. We had a poster that was to the general uh, Texas A&M public, so it wasn't uh, physics specific. And then we had a presentation specifically to the Cyclotron Institute, which was a little more, you know, intensive, because um, it was all professors and research scientists and all that in physics. And so we get to the poster session. My poster is beautiful. It The updated version is out outside my door on the wall. It's really lovely. Very dense because I was uh, doing a theory project. So I didn't have that much like 
graphs of data to put up. It's just a lot of math and a lot of words. But um, it's a... Uh, it's beautiful, and I was very proud of it. And I get to the poster session. I present for about two hours to random people. I had one person sit through my whole spiel, walking through my entire poster, and then ask me what my major was, which was hurtful. It has physics in the title of the poster. <laughs> but um, I get through, the, you know, it's like a two-hour poster session. And at the very end, like, everyone's packing up, essentially, and one like, the the people in my program are going around and looking at each other's posters since they don't have to man theirs anymore. And one of my friends comes up to my poster and is reading through it. And because she's like adjacent to my project, she she's following it well on her own. And she reads through the whole thing and she's like, Audrey, did you realize you have the same plot on here twice? <laughs> and it's true. I put the same plot on my poster that I was cramped for space on. Just doubled. In two different spots, because I had um, a project that was based on doing a lot of slightly different iterations of the same process. And so half of the poster is outlining that process in a generic case, and the other half is a case study on a specific application of that process. And so I had switched halfway through which process I was going to use as my case study, but I didn't update the other plot that was a separate example. And so I had the same plot on there twice, and I was so frustrated with myself. I fixed it before I presented it in DC, thank God, but I was so embarrassed. I'm like, how did I go two hours staring at this poster without realizing the same plot is on there twice? Yeah. Plus, like, however many hours I spent making the poster, staring at it, editing it. <sighs> Although I suppose if nobody asked mm. why you had duplicate plots... Well... Part of that was because no one at that poster session were, like, they weren't physicists, mm. generally, and a lot of them weren't at all interested in my poster. I had one theater professor that went around to everyone's poster and made sure to get their full explanation and asked really thoughtful questions, but from, like, outside of a, f a physics perspective, because obviously it's a theater professor. And it was so helpful, because I couldn't assume any prior knowledge of physics at all. And... You know, it really makes you think about your project in a different context. Like, she asked at the end, so why is this important to science at large and to society at large? And I'm like, that's a very insightful question here is my best shot. Like, it's got potential energy applications, but it's so fundamental that it's hard to see. But Have you ever seen, oh, I forget what it's called, but there's a series on YouTube where they take people from different disciplines, different expertise areas and I are you guess, talking about five levels yes yeah yeah so they explain it at five levels of complexity it's like a child like a teenager a college student a grad student and an expert generally i, I like some of them a lot i like they did one on dimensions with a guy yeah. from caltech that one was cool quantum computing one That's was the really only one good. i've seen the dimensions one was good because physicists like good physicists in my opinion have like such a special talent of explaining things and i think it's something that is necessary to be a professor in physics because a lot of the concepts you have to teach to people are very abstract and very hard to understand and so i think they make kind of a natural talent for <laughs> explaining things that are very complicated and abstract in general not just in physics 
Although I feel like that's also a problem with people pursuing a faculty career, mm. especially in physics, because perusing our podcast Twitter, I'm pretty in tune with the academic side of Twitter. And so there's a trend going around where people talk about different issues or just different trends that come up in their line of career that mm -hmm. no one really talks about but is definitely present. And one of the ones I saw earlier was that professors get absolutely no uh, instruction on how to teach. I think about this so often. The fact that I can get a job as a professor without ever taking a teaching course baffles my mind. And I think it lies into what we were talking about earlier, about like the untaught aspects of being a scientist. Like you're not taught to network, you're not taught to give presentations and publicly speak really that much at all, except through experience. And it, the same goes for teaching. It's just something you're supposed to pick up along the way, but for something so important and vital to your career. Yeah, and that could have such an impact on the students that come through. Yeah. We've had we've had a mix of teachers that have figured it out and have teachers who have not figured it out in terms of how to effectively convey principles of physics, mm -hmm. principles of science and mathematics clearly to students without assuming too much background, without assuming everyone's following you at all times and giving assignments that support the the learning that you're doing and especially if it's early in their career yeah because it's definitely at least the way it's set up now to me it seems it's something that you can definitely learn through practice mm -hmm. and something that you can if you do practice it semester after semester you can become pretty good at it but if you get stuck with a professor who's pretty earlier in their career and they haven't yet figured that out mm. or late <laughs> or late and they just have tenure and don't care anymore. Yeah. Which reminds me, hmm? kiddos out there, fill out your course evals. Because yeah. sometimes that can have a pretty hefty impact on a professor getting tenure. Mm -hmm. So if you really care about them, fill out your course evals. Yeah, if you have that young professor who's not yet on ten tenure, but has really kind of changed the shape of your understanding of your field, you know, maybe just shoot a course eval their way. And, and tell the administration and of the department and of the school at large that they're doing a wonderful job because that can help so much. It's hard enough to get any kind of advancement in, in academia as it is as a younger person. So course evals are super important. And it's finals week, so they're probably out for about everyone, no matter what school you're at. Do you know when they're due or when they cut off? They're usually due around Christmas. Okay. Or, like, around the last day of finals, which is around Christmas. Yeah. Speaking of, how many finals do you have? I have one written final. I have our advanced quantum final. And then I have to compose a minuet in the style of Mozart or Haydn. And I have written one, and I had the professor review it, and he said, Audrey, you have not written a minuet, you have written a waltz. So I'm 70 years too late. Because you got that boop boop bap, right? Yeah, I've got the uh, the um chuck chuck as he says. Um, it's, it's too much of a waltz, and I need to go rewrite it so it is no longer a waltz. And I need to fix some funky mixed chords that I accidentally put in there with my key. My modulation didn't quite work on the way back. It's fine. <laughs> I've got two weeks though. It's nice not to till the day of our quantum final. That's nice. So I've got some time. I think. 
finals week for me is mostly going to be graduate school applications because all of mine are due on December 15th, pretty much. I'm not stressed. I'm, it's fine. I'm, everything's fine and I've got it under control and I've totally written my personal statement already. It's fine. Yeah, I got to rewrite mine tonight or tomorrow for mm. my application due Monday. Mm. And I'm really hoping my letter writer will come through because they haven't submitted mine that was due the first mm. well the letters aren't due till the 15th but like i got an email today saying hey part of your application is incomplete you're still missing a letter and then they also got the one due monday that hasn't gotten in yet yeah i feel on, on the vein of the conversation we were we were previously having um they're like in our department as an undergrad you are required to satisfy like the speaking and the writing requirements which are super basic that just make sure you can you can give a talk and you can write a, a report on your research or or your whatever your your lab experience but as a, an academic scientist the amount of writing you're going to have to do throughout your career is upsetting frankly <laughs> it's a lot of not just writing papers for publication on your research but also writing letters of recommendation I think it's something that's really overlooked. I've been thinking about that lately uh, as I fantasize about my future <laughs> career. Yeah. And eventually some student is going to come ask me, well, hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully I have that impact on someone that they'll more than want me to recommend them for mm -hmm. a very prestigious position. <laughs> but I just, I feel so unprepared to do so. Like I have no idea what that's, especially because we can't look at the letters. Yeah, you I have can't no idea what them. one looks like. Yeah, and I I had one of my letter writers submit all of his like instantaneously when I put in the request through all my applications. Like he just had them ready to go, which means like it makes me so much worry. Like, did he only write, you know, like a generic one? Does it actually say anything about me? Like, or is it just like, good student did research, fine. <laughs> I don't know. And so because you you waive your right to to see any of your recommendation letters throughout your entire career. It's like I don't I've never read one. What does it look like? How do I write one? How do I judge this person's character if they've only like just been in my class? Like I feel like I'd be the kind of professor to say no to requests if I didn't actually know the student. Be like I'm not familiar enough. I'm like I I think what I do is I'd say if you are desperate for a letter and you have no one else, I will try my best to write one if you send me your CV, but I do not know you enough from teaching one class where you got an A to write a sound, strong letter of recommendation. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'd be that kind of professor. And that would be really good if you also had pretty good friendships with the other your other colleagues in your department. Mm. So you could work with the student to figure out a good person they could get that letter from. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's a student who has been around for a while, you just circumstances dictate who you end up in class with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of what you learn as a young physicist going through all the school that we have to go through is you, you pick up on things you want to do like this, like ways you want to teach things that worked, things that didn't work. I feel like I should be taking notes, not on the classes, but on how they're taught so that I can, do you have a note for it on your phone? I know I started one at one, some, one point. Yeah, so I can 
look back and think, oh, this is like, oh, a format of homework that really worked for me and helped me understand the material better. Or this is something that really didn't work and didn't help me on the exams by doing the problem sets and just what what works, what doesn't work. Because otherwise there's nothing to help you learn how to teach. So I do have a list. Oh, no. But... I must have been really frustrated with the homework <laughs> when I wrote it because it's just one bullet point and it says, well, it's titled stuff I do as an educator. Ooh. One bullet point, make homework due on Fridays. So students don't have to waste their weekends doing work. Yeah. Oh man. Do you have a bunch of stuff on Mondays? Monday and Tuesday. I had one, I had one due Tuesday, but a big part of my lab course was that the check-ins would be dependent on like when you started a project so i would have a lot of stuff due like mondays and wednesdays and such i feel like i'd be the kind of professor to do something obnoxious like a voting system on when homework should be due ranked choice voting system just set up a little poll see what day works best for everyone to do work and it's really just dependent on the kind of cycle you have for yourself Mm mm-hmm Because I'm very much a person who wants to start a specific day, like, of the week. Like, I usually take Saturdays to kind of de-stress, clean up things, Mm -hmm. and plan for what's ahead. And then I'll start executing that on Sunday, leading into Monday and getting through the week. And then I want to at least try to come to some sort of climax or conclusion by Friday. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that would fit perfectly into a schedule where things are due on Fridays. Yeah. Which is why I love that me and my advisor have started doing meetings on Fridays mm-hmm. because it fits perfectly into that. It, I like that my meeting with my advisor is the last thing I do every week. Like for Friday evening is when I have my meeting with my advisor. It's the last thing on my schedule until Monday. And so it gives me so much time to like take. I take so many notes after meetings of just things that we talked about and I need to think about and. I had one of those meetings this week that just was so good. I had one of those meetings where you go in thinking you have nothing to talk about. You didn't do that much work that week. Like, you don't have any new developments on the research front. And so you end up talking about everything. We ended up talking about the scope of my project, how it lies into a larger experiment at Slack, how that lies into the future of collider technology, And then we talked about ionization physics, like the theory behind it and how I'd apply it to my code. We laid out an extensive and detailed plan on where I'm going next and what the timeline is. And it's just one of those meetings that's just so energizing and like makes you so excited to move forward in your research is exactly what I needed because I was feeling like I had nothing to show for what I'd done this week. And now it's just like, I know exactly what I'm doing. These meetings are so important to (laughs) our development as scientists yeah so i feel like if you did just cram it into say the middle of the week in the middle of the day Mm -hmm. you wouldn't really have that time afterward to just soak in what just happened and be able to reflect on that yeah and i feel like that could really damper what you take away from it damper dampen hamper (laughs) put Put together together, you get damper This is me trying to reduce the amount of filler words I use. Yeah. You just put words together now? I'm rewiring my brain as we speak. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think one of the things that's going to be most 
uh, intimidating about starting a career in science is like starting to fulfill the mentorship role for younger people because like granted we've got our entire phd before we need to get that far pending acceptance into phd programs so like maybe we'll wait a little bit but um like as soon as you get an academic position you're you're in a lab group and you start mentoring undergrads and having uh graduate students if you have money (laughs) and and all this and you're immediately put it switched from that role of someone who has a mentor to someone who is the mentor to to young students and it's just like teaching like it's one of those things that you aren't taught and you just have to learn through observation and then learn by doing which is why tutoring's great i loved being a tutor that was so helpful for me as as someone going into academic science like just sitting down with students from all different backgrounds and trying to find ways to explain physics in a way that they get was really informative and i wish i could still do it more mm-hmm. but yeah I, I it would be nice if it was part of our curriculum though it's just like mandatory teaching course on how to express science in ways that people outside the field understand I feel like it could be easily implemented in a graduate curriculum. Granted, mm. I don't know terribly much about how graduate <laughs> curriculums work. Yeah, we haven't done it yet. But I have a working understanding. Yeah. That's eh, not a working understanding. <laughs> Pending I've, understanding. I've skimmed through the pages of the actual curricula mm-hmm. on my way to finding the application information. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be useful... To have a class covering the logistical parts of it, too. Because physics is so much about, like, big ideas and abstract concepts and heavy math and all this. I feel like logistics get lost a lot. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where you're, like, making plans with a physicist and there's no logistical information about how it's actually going to happen. Like, it can be as simple as, we're going to talk in the on this day. And I'm like, okay, we're going to talk on this day. Uh, at this time cool how how (laughs) what's am i calling you at that time are we doing it over the phone are we doing it over skype should i call you should you call me like are we putting cameras on are we not or like how long is it going to last like simple logistical things that get lost and just never get brought up yeah and i think it's just a lot of parts aspects of physics and of science in general just make those seem less important but they're vital to getting things done and i think in terms of being a physicist that's also a professor logistics like how to plan a lecture (laughs) like do you go over everything do you speak it out loud beforehand to know how long it's going to take do you stick to the material do you make slides or do you do it on the chalkboard and when is it advantageous to do which do you post lecture notes afterwards on what platform should you email them to your students should they be handwritten should they be scanned should they be what like or like just grading logistics carving logistics all this stuff that doesn't get covered ever until you're in it is just crazy mind-boggling to me that there's nothing required beforehand to start doing that like, you don't have to prove that you know how to make a lesson plan and choose a textbook and, a, like, write homework problems. 
that's so hard. It's not easy to write good constructive homework. That's probably why so many of them just copy from the textbook. They just yeah, don't know how. Because it's difficult. We've had some professors that have been really good at writing their own, like, at least semi-original uh, homeworks that will really help you understand the material. I think our quantum homeworks did a great job of that, our first semester quantum. And mm. I think... Uh, those were our E&M really homework, Our E&M homeworks were pretty good, too. Those weren't too hard. They were... I think I think our quantum homeworks got too hard sometimes, but they were generally constructive and sometimes interesting. And our E&M homeworks were also, like, they were achievable and they helped you understand the material and they weren't from the book. Right? I really don't remember them I can't enough. remember them that well. But we've had, we have had a lot of... Like, textbook questions are sometimes great. They're sometimes great. They're sometimes terrible. <laughs> so it depends on the book. But, like, how do you pick a textbook? You haven't re- read all the textbooks for every subject. Like, how are you supposed to know which one's the best for your students? Like, it's just something that doesn't get talked about. And then also, when your student is eventually going to apply to graduate school, <laughs> some of those applications ask which textbooks you've used. Yeah. Because that becomes then a judgment of the level of rigor of the classes you've taken here's a question like very specific to us are you on those textbook lists are you listing griffith's quantum and sakurai yes yeah of right? course i am because i read sakurai and i actually liked it a lot i thought it was great uh follow-up question <laughs> which one are you listing first i'm gonna list griffith's first then sakurai okay because we didn't primarily use Sakurai, but I read it when Griffiths wasn't thorough enough, which it wasn't a lot of times. This is hyper-specific for physicists, but if you're taking quantum mechanics and you're learning it out of Griffiths' quantum mechanics, it leaves out a lot of the rigorous mathematics that sometimes I want to understand the material better, especially in quantum mechanics. If you brush over mathematics, a lot of stuff can get really confusing for me, so... We read the book, or we were recommended the book by Sakurai, which is for graduate students, and is the first half of it brilliant. Then Sakurai died, <laughs> and then it's a very different book after that. But the first half of it is brilliant, and it's very concise, very clear mathematically how everything's motivated and physically. So I quite liked it, and I will list it on my on my book list for graduate school applications because I am quite proud that I could understand it. <laughs> but <laughs> that's hyper-physics spe- specific. But One thing I'm really pretty sad about is that you have to list your most recent math course. Mm-hmm. And mine was MAT 341. Which is what, for those listening? Applied Real Analysis. I loved that class. I hated that class, but I loved that class. I I enjoyed it. But I didn't do too hot in it. Oh, no. So now I got to oh, no. <laughs> stick that on a Harvard application that I got a B plus. That is m- probably my proudest A, actually, because I work my ass off for that A because our professor was a little bit spacey in the teaching department. He didn't quite uh, teach <laughs> that much. I-, I think there wasn't. Uh, too many questions that he'd put on the board that he actually finished solving he'd always end up like just staring at it trying to figure out where he'd gone wrong for like minutes at a time that were just silent 
<laughs> so I, it was like an undergrad doing homework, except it's the professor at the board in front of his class. Yeah, he's a full professor, like not a grad student teaching the course or anything. And he doesn't know how to do, I guess it's just past Calc 4. It's the next one, essentially, after Calc 4. It's applied real analysis because it's a lot of differential equations. Uh, but I studied my ass off for that class, and I got an A in it, and I'm so, like, that's probably one of my most proud A's, because it was taught so little, and the book was terrible. Our book kept referencing a website that didn't exist, and all this crazy stuff, and it was not helpful. And so I was very proud when I got an A in that class. I had an actual panic attack during one of the exams. Like, I remember sitting at the, it was like the first or second exam, and I had just gotten back from like one of my first therapy sessions ever. So I was like not feeling the greatest. And um, I just remember sitting at the desk feeling like there was an asteroid coming towards the building and no one else was reacting to it. And I was like, what the fuck is happening right now? And I was like shaking. Ooh. But I got one of the highest scores in the class on that exam. That's what the Frobenius method will do to you. <laughs> Uh, grace under pressure is one of my <laughs> my qualities. <laughs> so I can I can get an A on an exam when having a panic attack and when I'm like actually very ill. I remember our, our modern physics class. I took an exam while I was just so sick. I had like a I don't know if it was the flu or like a really bad cold, but I had not been able to study because I couldn't like have my eyes open. <laughs> And I went into that exam and I was like coughing the whole time, just dying. And I still got an A on the exam. So. Awesome. Just saying, I'm cool. <laughs> Going off of the topic <laughs> of exams and such. Yeah. And now that we're leading into finals, finals week. week, do you have any <laughs> sort of habits or rituals or modes of operation? Well, I think we have one as a collective. And We've kind of developed one. We've developed one in that we go to a specific room with whiteboards and we work through problems together on the whiteboard for like the entire day before the exam. That's all we do. We like sometimes we order food in and we just don't leave that room. And it's I think it's pretty effective. There's that one time we went over a question just by chance and we got to the exam like 30 minutes later and it was the exact question. That we'd just gone over. I think that I think that that was for Yeah, it was for waves and optics. And we had gone over a question just by chance, we thought, like, oh, we've never done something like this. And then we get to the exam and that's the question. And I'm like, shit, I just did this. I know exactly how to solve it. And it was beautiful. It almost felt like cheating. I know, but we we didn't cheat. We literally just chance, pure chance. And well, chance in the fact that we'd gone over like every question in the textbook at that point. But I think that's why it pays off is that we're just so thorough and like we go through pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. And so the likelihood that we'll get a question we've already done is higher and higher and higher the more we do it. So I'll see you there before quantum this year. Because at the end of the day, you can look at it in two ways, I feel. Mm-hmm. You can be like, oh, questions like these will never be in the, on the exam. I'm not going to waste my time doing them. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the exam, it's on there, and then you have regret. <laughs> yep. Or you could waste your time being absurdly thorough mm-hmm. and doing everything up front in the short term. 
Yeah. And that'll really pay off for you in the long term. When you get to the exam, you ace it, you're good, and you have all that background moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think study skills are one of those things that I wish I had learned earlier. Because we've talked about this before, but like being a good student in high school didn't require study skills. And so being in college and being in a field like physics that is a bit rigorous by most standards, it's a def definitely a change where you can't just rely on your your natural gift for understanding how to fill in bubbles. Like you can't you can't rely on that anymore and you have to develop study skills and if you didn't in high school because they were easy for you you have to develop them very fast. And so I think that was a challenge for me freshman year is like adjusting to needing to study for exams. It was kind of new for me and it's not something I was prepared for. And so it, it definitely has rubbed off um, even to like my senior year where a lot of times I don't study very much and I definitely should study more, but I'm I'm like habitually thinking I've got this because I'm good at tests, but that's not true once you get to a certain point in whatever field you're in. Like tests get harder, turns out. Who knew? But not only do the tests get harder, but the people taking the tests get, get better. better. Yeah. So every every year you're with a more and more specific, specialized group of like classmates that are more and more capable of doing it. You can't rely on people who have never touched physics in their life to fail the test to give you a higher relative grade on the curve. Like, you can't do that. So. It's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm interested to see how that's going to change in grad school. Because then you've lost any semblance of mediocrity <laughs> in physics. Everyone is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Everyone aced their classes as an undergrad. Every Like, it, it's just one of the highest levels you can get in academia is the PhD program. So what's the course load going to be like? What are the tests going to be like? I've heard from some people it's less competitive because everyone's just there to learn at that point and we're all great. You're not but... there for grades anymore. Yeah, it's... You're there to pass. Yeah. Because so much of undergrad becomes like a competition. Because you got to get into grad school. Right. After grad school, then it's just a job hunt, which <laughs> we won't get there yet. <laughs> We won't talk about that yet. We'll cross that bridge when we get yeah. there. Yeah, but I'm I'm interested to take my first graduate school test. On the assumption that I get into grad school. <laughs> I'm not excited to take my first graduate school test. I'm not, I, I did not say excited. Did I say excited? I said interested. I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> I'm cautiously curious. <laughs> if I could take it in a no pressure, no graded scenario. Although when I was studying for one of my exams earlier this semester, I came across a qualifying exam mm. for one of the programs I'm applying to. Oh, no. <laughs> you take it? No, I didn't take it. Okay, <laughs> good. I think that would destroy me. Yeah. I don't want to think about that yet. We've got a couple years to qualifying exams. For those who don't know, though, because I, I understand that if you're a young person in science, you might not know really the process for, for graduate school, for PhD programs, because you're not there yet. I feel like that's such... You can finish your point, oh. but I just want to interject real quick. I feel like that's such a problem, and that's yet again another thing that <laughs> they people don't aren't teach taught. You. Yeah. you just kind of have to seek out that process yourself, because mm -hmm. no one's going to teach it to you. And if you don't actively 
look out for it and find out what you have to do, mm-hmm. you're going to end up so behind. And that's something I fell into. Oh, yeah. Especially because we don't come from scientific backgrounds. Like, none of our none of our relatives yeah. have gone through a PhD program and told us about it. Like, I, don't, I, I had no clue. I, like, I knew I wanted to get my PhD because that's what you do to get a job in physics as a professor, which is what I want to do. Uh, but I had no clue what that process would be like. I like I know it takes probably six years because that's what people have told me. But what do you do? And so, for those in our boat, as of a few years ago, when you get into grad school, you take courses for eh, the first two years, yeah, and then you take a qualifying or like preliminary exam, right? Yeah, you take an exam and then you advance to candidacy for your PhD, and then you're essentially full-time research for, like, four more years, uh, and then you present your dissertation, defend it, and then you get your PhD. Am I missing anything? Mm. We haven't done it yet. There may be some <laughs> small intermediate steps, oh, yeah, but yeah. you got the gist, I believe. There's usually one or two big exams you have to take. I know one of them's after like your first two years, like after your course major coursework is done. Yeah, you take a big exam that advances you to candidacy. But I think there might be another one after that, after your like your third or fourth year. I can't remember though. I saw someone tweet earlier today, and I can't speak on how true this is, how much of a hot take it is. But they said something along the lines of that you shouldn't really try that hard mm. on your PhD. Because it's such a pass-fail thing Mm. that you should just write a thesis that will be accepted. And instead, you should focus your time on building up your career for after PhD Mm. and like establishing future postdoc connections, putting out publications, stuff like that, as opposed to just focusing primarily on your thesis. Yeah, I think that's a concept of, of balancing what you're passionate about, which for most everyone getting their PhD in science would be the science, which would be your research, which would be your thesis, and and professional skill building. And I think uh, there's something to be said for focusing on your, your research, but in focusing on your research, spreading the word on what you're doing. So going into conferences and presenting your work is part of doing your research because you're getting professional perspectives on it you're spreading the word you're every time you present your research you learn more about your research everyone knows that presenting is a learning process and so going to conferences going to meetings meeting with people and discussing what you're doing is contributing to the science but it's also contributing to those professional soft skills kind of things and i think it's a matter of of balancing like the networking the perspective job searching with doing what you're really passionate about which should be hopefully your thesis at least in some regard yeah and when it comes to balance i think there's a huge a huge issue at least that i've come across Mm -hmm. and especially in the undergraduate career between work on the micro scale and work on the macro scale yeah like You'll come to the point where you will be applying to graduate school. You have to be worrying about the resume you've built up to this point and like going through applications, Mm -hmm. going through uh, doing your research if you're doing a thesis, 
building up all that. And that takes so much time and effort and is inevitably so much more important to your future career and what you become. But at the same time, you can't devote that much time to it because you've got to worry about like, oh, you've got a homework due on Monday yeah. for this class that you may or may not really care about and that may or may not really affect anything that you'll end up doing in the future. Yeah, and I think especially in science, the workload for undergrads really doesn't allow the flexibility you need to to focus on a lot of those soft skills. And the the school, Stony Brook at least, tries to tries a little bit to offer uh, opportunities to learn. It, it will do little workshops on this or that and career center events. But when you're just buried in short-term work, you it's so easy to not prioritize those. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, there's like a, a networking event uh you know this this week on thursday but i've got a problem set due on friday and i can't work on that until after my research meeting on wednesday so thursday is committed to doing that problem set and i can't there's no flexibility there like it you see it as so black and white like i get my homework done or 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 nothing like i can't not do it so (laughs) you get so wrapped up on the micro scale of week to week problem set to problem set class to class that it's hard to focus on you know, big picture, how am I going to be a better scientist? Mm-hmm. But that's something I do like just about doing this podcast, honestly, with a uh, self-compliment. But it, it is at the very least a time to reflect on what we're doing to make ourselves better scientists. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really advantageous. It's you know, just time to think about it. Yeah. And also just raising awareness for those who hopefully we can prevent falling into that hole. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot that you can't help with it. There's definitely a lot that you can't help. A lot of it is structural in the way that we teach students. And and we don't have control over that as undergrads. Right. But if you have an idea going into it of what to expect, Mm -hmm. then that could go a long way to your... And adjusting your schedule. Yeah. I I think about this a lot um, last semester I had a bit of a hell semester because everything that determined my GPA was due on Thursdays and so I'd try and space it out but you know you want to have a weekend and you don't want to work on a Friday because you just finished all your hell assignments on Thursday so why would you want to work on a Friday um but just scheduling your work out like obviously I didn't start everything on Wednesday if I could avoid it sometimes I did and it was not great for my sleep schedule but you can't start everything on the same day if they're all due the next day so you got to space out all your work but the way that you schedule in when you do work if you do it not based on the due date but based on your schedule long term it's so much nicer like oh i'll do this work on fridays so that on on the early days of the week like monday and tuesday i can focus on my research or i can focus on uh, grant proposals or, you know, kind of big, bigger picture stuff instead of, you know, just filling your week with stressful work and then destroying yourself like one or two days out of the week with assignments so that you just have to sleep the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. It's definitely something just to be said for uh, actually scheduling in time to do different things. Yeah, because if you don't let that small scale work be the bottleneck to your entire schedule. Yeah, that's exactly that what really yeah i agree with that that's something that 
will take a lot of practice. Yeah. Take a lot of just figuring out where well, figuring out what works for you, how best you work, when, mm-hmm. how, what environments you need to do this and that. Yeah, and I think it's definitely something we've gotten better at over our four years. Yeah. But there's still a lot to learn on on how to arrange your time in the way that's going to best benefit you long term. Like, yes, I got you know mostly a's doing all my work on wednesday nights and not sleeping but i was destroyed (laughs) for a long time and it kept me from doing a lot more that i could have done because i was so you know sleep deprived and exhausted and burnt out and all this so just thinking thinking the long game playing the long game is super advantageous but one thing that is beneficial is that the further you go in your career and the more specialized you become, at least ideally, the more or the closer it becomes to what you want to do and what you're happy doing. Yeah. Because if you think back to high school, you're taking such a wide array of different courses and you're basically forced to expose yourself to all sorts of things. Whether or not you like it, whether or not you're interested in it, mm-hmm. you have to do it. And then when you when you get to undergrad... It's a little less so, but you still have those requirements that you got to mm-hmm. fulfill. But then going into grad school and then whatever career you go to, even if you don't go to grad school, whatever. Yeah. But whatever career you do go into, that'll be almost exclusively like one thing or another that mm-hmm. is only the thing that you want to work <laughs> on. You're not being forced to do something that isn't relevant at all to who you are and what you're trying to do in the long term you are doing what you want to do in the long term and i feel like that fact that you're doing something you enjoy doing Mm. really makes it so much easier to schedule yourself to do it and be able to sit down and be productive doing it yes and no speaking from the times where i've been a full-time researcher like for pay doing physics uh, one way or another yes and no because again it it kind of mimics the same thing as as an undergrad where you're doing your research full time but it's so easy to pigeonhole yourself into thinking about such a minute but like complicated and important problem that you can lose the big picture and i so many times i have wasted hours and hours thinking about one really small problem instead of like looking at the research at large and determining a better solution that could avoid that problem entirely so i think but yes you do have that kind of flexibility in scheduling where you can design your work to be the most efficient and the most rewarding long term but it is it is hard to do and it definitely is something i haven't quite learned how to do yet uh, based on the times that I've done research full time, because it's, I I very easily get lost on on minutia, and it usually takes like my advisor or a, another like student or grad student, like an outside perspective to say, is this really what you should be thinking about right now when you've got like you know, this whole research question that's like so big and like, uh, has like such a vast domain. Why are you thinking about, like, this one line of code so much? And it is definitely something you have to learn to do. Another un- untaught soft skill. 
of physics and of science. So many unspoken rules and yeah. skills, untaught lessons. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what your like your research mentor is for. Like I learned so much from my advisor on soft skills. He's like, here's what we do when we go to uh, uh, do, try and do a presentation like this. Here's how you structure that. Here's how you write a grant proposal. Here's the structure of how you lay that out and where you start and where you begin and what the motivation is that like to that based on which government agency you're applying to. Like, it's so many specific things that I wouldn't learn anywhere else. So it's very nice that I have an advisor that does focus on soft skills a lot. Yeah. And in a sense, academics kind of redeems itself in that it's an environment set up for you to get connected with an advisor. Mm -hmm. It can be great and it can be terrible. (laughs) If you have a good mentor and a good environment, that will set you up for success more than anything else. Mm -hmm. I would go so far as to say is that your mentor relationship is far more important than Mm, like the level of education you're getting. I mean, it's a balance obviously, but I, I have like my coursework supports the, the work I'm able to do with my mentor because if I didn't, if I hadn't taken like this rigorous coursework, I wouldn't be able to do as much science and I, he wouldn't be able to teach me as much as he can because I can't follow him without a rigorous background in physics so this is true they they kind of mutually benefit each other in that uh my relationship with my more mentor helps me keep my scientific education in perspective of where i want to be which is essentially in his job mm-hmm. <laughs> and then in my coursework that teaches me all of the background i need to move on further with my with my mentor so I think it's kind of a feedback loop. Like my my mentor freshman year, my, my research advisor when I was a youth had a lot less he could teach me because I knew less to to work with. He didn't have much material to go off of that I would actually be able to understand which, without just teaching another course to me, which is not his job. So now that I am in a new advising relationship and i have such a more robust background in physics and in science and the world in general i can i can do so much more with my with my advisor he can teach me so many more things that are so much more useful because he has the intellectual material to work with in me and it's very nice and it's also interesting to if you have had the sort of experience when you've been with an advisor or a mentor for a significant period of time Mm. starting when you may have been a lot less experienced um going forward in time to now where not only you not only have you worked under them for a period of time but also meanwhile had that coursework had any sort of outside Mm -hmm. experiences it's interesting to look back on how your conversations and your meetings have changed yeah um from going to what could have been like just you sit down and they give you a lecture um, that turning into you two having a discussion on the matter at hand and you actually contributing unique, relevant thoughts to the conversation. Yeah, I remember when I first started in research, I had to write the little report about what my research was in order to sign up for like credit or sign. I think for my first Eureka like grant application for money. I had been doing so little research before that that I had to 
try my very best to describe just the project I would be doing and its context in like the larger physics. And I had so much trouble with it and I had to sit down with my advisor for like an hour going sentence by sentence here. This is not correct. This is technically correct, but you need to rephrase it so it's more accurate to the physics and all this. And then like later that just that year, I had to submit another report for like the end of the semester research report. And just having done the research for a few months, like I brought that into him. He fixed one spelling error that was actually not correct. <laughs> I had to reverse it in my actual report. But he read it and he said, Audrey, you're so much more intelligible in your writing than you were like three or four months ago just because you've done it. And, it, and that's kind of how research goes and how, how your undergrad education goes. And I feel like just life as a young person, like everything moves very fast. And so in a matter of months, you can be a completely different scientist in the way you communicate. And now, like, I'm, I'm revisiting my old advisor a lot because um, someone has picked up a very similar project to what I had been working on. And so I've had to have meetings with, with them and, and communicate the work that I did and try and help them, uh, like, make slight adjustments to it and do different projects. And it's such a different experience just being in that room now, knowing everything I know and having worked on a different, two different research projects in different fields now, it's such a different perspective going in and I feel like such a, more of a scientist than I did. That's like kind of the best part about being a senior. <laughs> it's just like, I feel like I'm so much more qualified to exist in a room of scientists now where I, like freshman year, I definitely didn't. Yeah, that sense of improvement feels mm -hmm. like a drug sometimes. Yeah, I get high off of it for sure. I'm like, like, wow, the thing that I just said sound sounded like such a scientist thing to say, and I know what every word I just said means, and I couldn't have dreamed of saying such a sentence two years ago. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things where, because we're in the transitory period between uh, just being an undergrad who doesn't know anything to being a, a researcher and a, and a grad student who knows many things and is making useful contributions to physics. We are transitioning between two of the five levels. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> or, yeah, between levels three and four, right? In in the five levels videos. Yeah, I, think like, so. I, I think college I think student so. is level three. And yeah, because it's like kid, high schooler, college student, grad student, uh, and then like professional. Yeah. And then sometimes they put an expert at the very end that's like actually the top person in that field, which sounds terrifying. But um, then it wouldn't be five levels, would it? <laughs> Six levels? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but... Yeah, we're we're just getting higher up. Moving on up. It's exciting. <laughs> I feel like this is one of those episodes where we've been a little hyped up and so we'll monologue without breathing for far too long. Yeah. And so I've had a few times where I've talked for so long that I can't, I can't breathe afterwards. I'm... And I don't want to breathe into the Yeah, microphone. so you end up like really softly breathing to the side like <sighs> Just take a few cleansing breaths, man. 
hear it so close because I'm wearing the monitor headphones. Oh my god. Oh, it's like you're breathing so close into my ear. It's like skeeving me out. Oh man, on the topic of um And also just being be able to breathe through my nose cuz on the walk over here. Oh, is it too cold or something? Do you I don't get know, stuff just out? for some reason when I'm out in the cold, my nose doesn't want to let me breathe through it. <laughs> okay. That's not normal. Cuz like once I come inside, it's fine and I can breathe through it, but when I'm outside in the cold, it's just like, nope, use your mouth. You can't breathe cold air through your nose? Apparently not. <laughs> I don't know if it's a genetic thing if I've adapted to this somehow sure. if it's the somehow saving my winters. life maybe i don't know uh. weird hey friends <laughs> i can't not laugh when you... why <laughs> i don't know because your voice sounds different when you're trying to like what speak I'm... <laughs> to the audience <laughs> uh it's like when you can do something so naturally but when you think about doing yeah, it it's like uh, it's like your phone voice you know how people sound different on the phone yeah or like your waitressing voice i have a different waitressing voice yeah yeah because when i would take phone alerts it was definitely not me speaking <laughs> yeah no. it's like so much usually so much higher pitched too yeah like i <laughs> i feel like i have a really high voice on the phone Okay, anything else with that? <laughs> okay. Do you want to start? No. Do you want yes. me to start? No. What parts do you oh, want to no. do? We can try a bunch of them. We've, we've done this before. We'll, I'll just yeah, mince something together. It was a disaster. <laughs> a disaster. <laughs> hey, friends. <laughs> Stop <laughs> Okay, one laugh. Hey, friends. You could just splice it from different words I've said throughout the episode. Oh, my God. Hey, friends. Do you know what episode this is? <laughs> okay. Hey, friends. I can't tell. Hey, friends. I can't tell when you're actually trying to start. I'm, no, I'm not starting at all. Are you just practicing? Yeah. <laughs> you, you say hello all the time. I don't think you need that much practice. Hey, friends. It doesn't have to be Hey Friends also. You but I want, I want it to be Hey Friends. Oh, yeah? Because I, I can't really think of anything else. Hello and welcome it seems great to me. No. But we're different people. Yeah, we're different people. Because hello and welcome then leads you to a, a to this is episode 13. To episode 13. Hey Friends, it's episode 13. <laughs> that doesn't seem as natural as like, hello and welcome to episode 13 of Spreading in STEM. Yeah, the podcast. But hello and welcome sounds like you're getting up on a stage to an audience you've never met. Where, hey friends, it's episode 13. Sounds like, hey guys, you've been waiting for this. Here it what is. What about, hey friends, welcome to episode 13. Yeah. Mix it together. That's put a them happy together. medium. Happy medium. <laughs> you want to do it? Hey friends, welcome to episode 13. Oh. Sprouting in stem. Well, we'll use that. Oh, okay. Let's clip it together. This is a lot of editing pressure on me. Well, we could at least work it out. Okay. So, hey, friends. Welcome to episode 13. Um, And then this is sprouting in stem. No. I feel like it all needs to go right together. Like, here. I'm going to do one. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. 
like, hey friends, welcome to episode 13 of Sprouting in STEM, the podcast about young people in science. I'm Audrey Farrell. That- I'm me. Oh my yeah. god, Matt. I know. I, oh, I was going so well. <laughs> going? What? Okay. So. <laughs> what am I supposed to keep going? I was waiting for you to say, I'm Matt Murphy, and you never did. Yeah. You said, um, I'm me. Yeah, well, <laughs> that would not... be that would be me saying my name. What? That was... <laughs> At some point, we can't just practice them. Uh, we just got to do it. I didn't know you were doing it. I thought you were I... just practicing it. Do you recall when I said, I'm going to do one. Are you ready? And oh, you said, yes. <laughs> I misinterpreted your intentions. With okay. That. Do you want me to do it again? Are you ready for a real one? What do I have to say? You can say, I'm Matt Murphy. I'm Matt Murphy. And then do you... <laughs> Okay. And then what? <laughs> i gotta be prepared okay. do you want do you want to say about what we did this week or do you want you can just do when i'm matt murphy and i'll do the rest if you don't want to do anything scripted because i get that i don't mind it's up to you what would you rather do let's do one where i introduce it and then you jump in for i'm matt murphy and then you say this week we talked about whatever okay Okay. Are you sure. are you prepared? <clears throat> Do you know what you're gonna say about I, what we I, did this week? I will try. Okay. <laughs> I can't take it seriously. Okay. Cleansing <laughs> breath. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Have you seen? Why um, is this so much pressure? It's really literally what we do all week, except we can pretend when we're recording that we're just talking and there's no microphones. But when you have to actually address the audience, you can't pretend that anymore. If I'm being honest, I haven't listened to an episode. You haven't of listened ours to one in a while. I like the, our first ones. I listened to like a lot mm-hmm. for for Same. quality Same. control and listening for anything that could be going wrong. And I think every once in a while, like obviously, I listen to the whole thing while I edit it. Yeah. Which takes ages. Yeah. But, um, so I I always listen to every episode. So you don't know what I cut out. I could do anything I want. I could cut you out of the podcast entirely. <laughs> yeah, but would you? <laughs> <laughs> no. Because <laughs> my voice is so annoying. No, I don't want to subject anyone to that for a full episode. Ugh. Are you ready to do a, a real one? Are you prepared? Have you cleansed enough in your breaths? One thing I've learned through my career is that you can never really be ready for what's to come. <laughs> You just have to do it. Whatever comes out of it doesn't matter. You just got to do it. (laughs) On that note. Let's do it. (laughs) I don't want to do this. (laughs) God damn it. Okay. Ready? Wait. So I'm saying my name and then saying what we did. Yes. What did we do? We talked about. So this week we talked about. The the things you need to know in physics that you aren't taught. The things you need to know in academia. That people never teach you. Remember that? That people never teach you. Yeah. Oh, this week we hope to teach you about the things that you need going forward in academia that people otherwise never teach you. That's okay. Yeah. I'll try to come up with some... Some smooth some legible, interpretations. Some legible utterance of that. Intelligible. All right, ready? We've been putting 
this off for like 20 minutes. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, it's been about 20 minutes. I can't. That's okay. one downside of having this is that I know exactly how long we've been avoiding <laughs> introducing the podcast. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Because once we do it once, We're we'll good. get better at it. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm starting. Yeah. Just, just go. Just do it. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. Come on. Let's do it. Okay, what I do we can't wait? do it while you're <laughs> having me. Come on. Come on. I can't do it when you're talking. Oh, wait. We never clapped. We don't need to. Oh. Because it's only us. Oh. <laughs> we, we only need to clap when there's a guest. Okay. You can clap for fun. Go. Okay. <laughs> Stop it. No, you see now that you're the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been the problem. I can't do it if you're breathing heavily into the mic. Get your calming breaths out. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the problem is that it's like hilarious to me that this is so hard. And so every time we fuck up, it's even funnier. Because I've formed this mental block about doing it. And yeah. I know that if I make some sort of sound or noise right before you do it it prevents it from happening I'll which gives me comfort fucking laugh my ass off all right i'm gonna do one <clears throat> hold on oh my god don't do I've another some- cleansing breath i've got something in my throat oh yeah <laughs> it's a laugh <laughs> stop it this is taking so long we've been recording for like two hours okay all right <laughs> we can do this. Okay. <laughs> Should I just do it without you? <laughs> what? Do it standing? The whole podcast? I don't know. What do we have like? Oh no, those are expensive, right? The whatever they're called. What? That you like strap to your collar. Oh yeah, annoyingly so. It would be nice, especially if we branched into video content. <laughs> I wasn't done with my thought. <laughs> I like that you're not looking at me. It's weird. <laughs> okay. No, you're the problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, we got you. I don't know, as soon as I'm going to start, I'm, I'm going to crack up because it's going to be weird. So I'm just going to roll into it. <clears throat> the silence because i can't decide when to start because i'm waiting for a conversational cue but there is none because it's scripted <laughs> god damn it okay all right hey friends <laughs> i hopped in the middle of yours are you are you prompting me yes okay ding here's your cue cue light on <laughs> hey friends and welcome to episode 13 of sprouting in stem the podcast about young people in science i'm audrey farrell I am Matthew Murphy, and this week we talk a lot about the different things you need to know going forward into academia that no one ever teaches you, so we'll try and teach you that. A little bit. A little bit. We'll touch on it. <laughs> Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>